I'm Linnea Hubbard, and on May 11, 2023, I had the opportunity to chat with Harley Whitehead, a logistical support volunteer from the UK, about his experiences over the last 15 months in Ukraine. Yeah, so uh, my name's Holly Whitehead, and um, I'm from the UK, um, Lancashire, and I'm a volunteer, frontline volunteer in Ukraine, uh, providing uh, logistical support and EOD support um, to other volunteers and Ukrainian forces. So just to clarify what logistical support means, that's moving things from a source country to Ukraine or to and from different groups within Ukraine? Yeah, so for example, uh, radios is quite a, a big a big thing for me. So um, we provide the radios uh, for the battlefield. So we get them from a supplier. I take them to be encrypted, and then take them myself to the to the front to make sure they get to the right place. Do you just have a guy who encrypts things? Yeah, so there's a guy. He's like a. Well, we have one guy in, in Lviv, and then we've got another guy in Kiev as well. So yeah, it's. <laughs> Pretty straightforward operation for them. So yeah, That's we just awesome. hang around the hang around <laughs> the office whilst he whilst he does his does his thing. Oh, so he can do it pretty quickly. Just like pop in and get things encrypted. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, we have to give him some notice, just let him know that we're coming because he has a normal job as well um, yeah. at the side of doing all that. So and and I mean, he does everything for free as a volunteer himself. So wow. Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is that you were living in Ukraine prior to the large-scale invasion. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I was living in Ukraine um, from 2019. So uh, I was living in the Kharkiv region and then um, into Kiev. Um, yeah, so I was I was working there um, as a teacher, actually. I was a teacher of English. So. What made you want to go to Ukraine to teach English? Yeah, um, to be honest... We just went there by chance once. It was just, uh, we didn't like Poland. We was in Poland and, and uh, we were pretty fed up of it. And we went to the airport and we just said, like, where's the next cheapest flight out of here? So, and it was uh, 20, 20 pounds, which was about $25 um, to Kharkiv. So we went to Kharkiv and then, yeah, oh. I just loved the place, you know. We met some good friends and then it was a case of, you know, we kept going back and going back and meeting friends. And then eventually, you know, just, I just wanted to stay. So, yeah, that's the story. Was it easy to just start teaching in Ukraine? Yeah, I had to do some courses and, uh, and things. But, I mean, the need for native English speakers is, was always quite high. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people want to, even though I've got a northern accent, you know, I probably don't <laughs> sound like your, your normal British guy off, off, off the Hollywood TV. Um you know, a lot of people want to learn from a native speaker and they will actually pay that extra as well to, to learn. So um, I got a job with a quite a decent company as well, which was quite well paid uh, for Ukraine. So, yeah, it was it was worth staying around for. And did you have to learn Ukrainian to teach there or even just to, like, get by day to day? Yeah, no, um, no, I didn't have to learn anything. I mean, to be honest, Harkiv is quite um, a good city in terms of English speaking. Uh, it is a... And was probably before the war. I think it's fair to say it was a, a quite Russian-speaking city. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't hear anybody in the whole time that speak Ukrainian. So, um, yeah, uh, English language there is quite quite good. There's there's a few clubs and 
there's actually a bar which you can actually only speak English in. So yeah, it's quite popular oh, wow. as well. Yeah, so it's it's English speaking. Everyone speaks English and practices in Harkiv. So yeah, it's you know it, it was always um, it was always okay in terms of getting by and stuff. And and to be honest, I did I did learn some uh, basic Russian as well. So just to, just to get myself by. I had plans and stuff to travel in Central Asia and places like that afterwards. Anyway, so I think um, learning Russian was always part of you know the agenda. Anyway, even after Ukraine and stuff. So yeah. So for any listeners who aren't super familiar with the map, Kharkiv is quite close to the border with Russia. Were you in Kharkiv when the full-scale invasion started? No, what, what happened was is that I flew, I came back to England for four days and I was due uh, I was due to go back in, uh, to Ukraine on the Friday. I flew back on the Monday night back to England because um, I have a daughter here, you see, who obviously maintained contact with me or she's 10, so... Um, I, I flew back here for four days, and during that four days, that's when the invasion started. Oh, yeah, and it was like a case of being in England. To, you know, um, I just got I woke up to a message, you know, turn on the news, turn on the news, and it's like helicopters flying on Kiev, and I'm like, you know, what's going on? You know, literally, I was there like the day before yesterday, sort of thing. So it was, uh, yeah, it was it was just all a bit of a surreal moment for me, really, to watch you know, my home at the time, because at the time I was actually living in Kiev, so uh, when the war started, so yeah, it was it was crazy, so we uh, we just kind of, you know, got, got a bit shell-shocked by the whole thing and the media, and you know, and eventually uh, I think uh, I landed back in Ukraine on the 3rd of March. Everyone wanted to do something to help, and everyone in England was like, you know, talking about what was going on, and finding ways to help and I, I had a van here so I just drove a van full of supplies over yeah that was the start of everything for us. Before that did you think the invasion was for sure going to happen or was it more like a eh, it's bluster? No like no I think we all just thought it was never going to happen or, or, or we actually thought that if it was going to happen it would just be Donbass and Luhansk. I mean, to be honest, I, I I was actually doing some photography the uh, a few days before for one of the English newspapers because um, I did a bit of photography and they actually reached out and said, "Do you fancy covering this um, this demonstration in Kiev?" And there was like twenty something thousand people in Kiev doing the demonstration. That was only a couple of days prior to the invasion, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think anybody really thought that you know it it happened and. and I, and that, that's me included as well. So, yeah, it, it was uh, quite a surreal time. But some of the other expats um, who I know, um, they was obviously stuck in Kiev at the time and trying to get on the train out of the country and everything. Um, to be honest, I was the only one who was actually going the other way, <laughs> you know, so um, out of everybody that I know personally anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah but no, none of the expats that I know from living there are in the country anymore. Did you have an idea as you were driving your van back to Ukraine what you were getting yourself into or like what you would do to help? Or was it more like pack the van and see what happens? Yeah, it was a case of pack the van and see what happens. And I mean, um, we kind of just made contacts as we went along. I mean, there was a lot of people, obviously, who had similar agendas to us and and, and things like that. And and me knowing the country, because I've travelled the whole of Ukraine, even prior to the war, 
you know, I used to get on trains everywhere on my spare time because I was I was always bored. So whenever I did have um, any spare days or anything, I always jumped on the train. And I was quite well, you know, drilled when it comes to the geography and, and kind of, you know, the situation of where the hot areas were as well, you know, what's going to happen sort of thing. So, yeah. As a sort of Russian-speaking foreigner, did you experience any issues with that after the large-scale invasion? Yeah, yeah, it did, yeah. So um, when we first actually went back, we got detained in Lviv um, just due to the fact that they, they'd searched my van. Um, <laughs> and there was loads of stuff in there. And we'd been searched numerous times already, so I wasn't concerned. And then I had a, a bag with a laptop in, and I didn't know that there was... They actually told me to stay in the driver's seat. My passenger, he was showing them the back of the van. And then all I heard was, you know, this is a big problem for you. And then my, my mate at the time, he shouted, oh, you better come here. So I've got out of the van and they've got my laptop back. And there's a Russian dictionary in the bag <laughs> uh, that, that I didn't even know was there. Like, I forgot it was even there. It was, I've not even opened that pocket on that bag at this point for about 12 months. So I was like, you know, you know <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, they were all pointing guns at us and everything. And then um, because I studied construction at university, um, I had drawings from my quantity surveying classes. So um, there was obviously building drawings. And they was they was trying to say that it was a bomb and cavity in a cavity and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, we ended up getting arrested for three hours. So whilst they went through all our phones, all our laptops, every, everything, you know, wow. they got arrested. So uh, until until I could actually explain, you know, he, he was he, he just didn't understand it. And I think in Lviv, obviously, they're quite patriotic uh, in U- about Ukraine, and you know, it's probably Ukraine's most patriotic city, to be honest. So I mean, Russian language is, you know, it's not always welcome in Lviv. Yeah. So uh, wow. yeah, it was it caused a big problem. Man. This guy's <laughs> got a shotgun up against. Uh, up against my chest and my mate sat in the van but he's got an AK-47 point at the back of his head he's not allowed to look anywhere else and it was like that for three hours and then the SBU came and uh, the guy spoke better English to be honest than the soldier who had the problem so um, the SBU came and after a bit of you know dialogue and everything everything was alright I can't blame them for thinking what they did because then the there was a big problem at that point with saboteurs and stuff as well there was there was people you know, Russian saboteurs as civilians and all sorts of, you know, people coming in and out of the country. So, um, yeah, it's probably hard for them to police that as well. So, you know, someone with a Russian dictionary and a few building drawings, is, you know, it's going to be a bit suspicious, isn't it? That's pretty sus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did you go from there? Well, we actually, uh, we was working out of Ternopil at the time because at the time it was more humanitarian aid, so... Uh, we had a lot of refugees uh, arriving in Ternopil, uh, which is a city in the west near near Lviv. Um, the weeks went by. We actually got a base in Jutoma, which is uh, about two hours from Kiev. So, um, yeah, so we, we was working out of Jutoma, um, trying to get aid into the areas um, towards Kiev. But obviously at this point, you know, they they were be- the, oh, the territory was becoming occupied, you know. So uh, obviously, mm-hmm. Bucha, Borodyanka, Makarov, um, all them areas 
occupied. So it, it was quite difficult for us to actually make any moves at that point because we wanted to get to Kiev, but we, we couldn't. And, and to be honest, we was quite lucky one day because one day we did um, want to go to a, to a place. And uh, it, to be honest, if it wasn't for Swampy, um, I don't know if you know who Swampy is, but he's, he's another volunteer. But if it wasn't for Swampy, we, we probably would have driven into the Russians. So because he rang me literally 20 minutes before, you know, I was on this road and uh, it's the Zutoma Highway. Everybody knows about uh, what happened on there. Um, but I was on the Zutoma Highway. And he he basically told me to stop my vehicle now, like, do not go any further. And I was like, okay. You know, oh. um, he said the Russians are on that highway. And, and luckily for us, you know, we did, we did actually stop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We turned around. So, I mean, if that phone call never happened, you know, who knows what could have happened. And they, you know, might have been all right, might have been dead. When you say humanitarian aid, what sort of stuff were you collecting and distributing at that point? Um, at that point, it was mainly uh, food, dry food, um, clothes, thermal blankets, you know, just general um, stuff like san- sanitation. Um, they, were, they were trying to get spare mobile phones and stuff as well, you know, um, stuff for children and, and everything at that point. So that that was pretty much what we was focused on at that point doing because what we what we had we had a large van um and we had trucks coming from the uk to the polish border to meals so what we was doing is filling up at the border coming back into ukraine filling up coming back and it was every single day you know we was flat out so i think i was driving something like 18 hours a day at that point whoa yeah so it was crazy it was like literally four hours sleep and we was back on the road again you know just because the border queues were quite quite intense as well but we, luckily we had like a bit of a piece of paper and a pass which which you know nine out of ten of times got us through the board quite quickly you've been saying we what kind of team did you have it was just me and another guy called steve um steven so he he was a mate of mine yeah so he he used to live with me in the uk come to ukraine to visit me every now and again when i was living out there so um he just you know joined in and it was just me and him, yeah. It was just it was a two man band. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how much aid you guys transported? Each run was probably around six or seven tons. And and we was doing it virtually every day. Like we was driving stupid amount of hours. So um, you know, well into the hundreds of tons, like when it comes into it. Because each lorry was carrying uh, I think it was eighteen or nineteen tons of aid. So and we was clearing a lorry like every three or four days or something. Yeah, it was it was crazy because what they was doing, they was driving from England and then um the lorry drivers were, were actually staying in on the Polish border waiting for us to come back and everything. So yeah, it was Wow. You know, it was yeah, it was intense and it was it was hard work at that point, you know, it was very, very hard work. But we got a lot from it. So, you know, it wasn't the case of of it being like tough in a sense, you know, it wasn't it was just it was just tiredness really, but obviously once you'd emptied the van and you you'd done what you needed to do, you know everything was just like a big weight off your shoulders. And, you know you were just ready to go again. So yeah, how risky was that drive? Yeah, um, to be honest, I, th- I thought that at that point um, it was all right. Actually, it wasn't too bad. It was anything after Jatoma though. It was at that point anything after that was quite risky. Um, there was another time where I was working up in Chernihiv, and that was probably like the, 
the most riskiest thing I've ever done, to be honest, in the whole of Ukraine. So, um, yeah, there was there was um, a request coming through for a, uh, some generators for a children's hospital. Um, and I had five days to get there, basically. They asked me if I wanted to do it, and I was like, okay. And basically, these children, they weren't going to they weren't gonna live. That's the reality of it. I mean, where they was, it was surrounded, there was no power. I didn't really ask too many questions either, but all I know is that the, the aid that we had and needed taking was what was going to save their lives. So um, somebody rang me. I was in England at this point, just having a, a two-week break, and was like, um, can you... Can you do this run to Chernihiv? So I was like, when? It's like, now. This is a Sunday night. It's like, well, these kids have basically got till Friday. Yeah, so that that was the situation. And these kids have never left this hospital life. They've lived there the whole life. So, so yeah, I drove um, to London, picked up a vehicle, and I drove all the way to, uh, to Chernihiv, basically. But what happened was is that when I was in Kiev, I, I was told this route was fine. Nobody else could do it, though, but this route was fine. This route wasn't fine. This, no, no. Route, was, this route was very much the grey area. So, um, yeah, it was completely the zero line. So when I drove up to Chernihiv, the roads are getting more empty, more empty. And I got to this Ukrainian checkpoint, and there was like, you, you can't go any further, you know. Um, the Russians are that way. So I'm like... I just drove from England, you know. You know, I understood, but at the same time, I was like, "I'm here," you know. I'm, I'm half an hour away from from where I need to be, and they couldn't really understand what I was doing either. Like, no one really spoke English, you know. Yeah, so I, I give them my passport, and I took my license plates off the uh, off the vehicle, and I just drove, and I drove into the into the area which was supposed to be occupied, but it, it wasn't. It was, um, it was just like driving. Uh, into a ghost town there was nobody there like where they said the russians were there was nobody there i was just driving into a a town that was just deserted completely um and then when i got to this hospital the i could see people peeking through the windows you know when i pulled up and they was all like what are you doing here sort of thing and there was like come in come in and i was like no uh i just dropped the, the kit off and i said i need to go you know whilst it's quiet um and yeah, so I, I went and, and uh, we started getting shelled on the way out, actually. So it must have been just spotted by a drone. Um, yeah, mm. so that, that was quite intense. You know, it was just a case of just getting your foot down and keep driving. So the actual vehicle that we, we've used has still got all the marks from all the shelling and, and uh, all the holes in the back of the van. Yeah, from, from the shelling. So um, yeah, that's here in England now. That's quite the souvenir. Yeah, yeah, it was quite intense. I mean, to be honest, I, I was just bothered about the tyres exploding, you know, um, piece of shrapnel hitting the tyres, which luckily it never happened. Um, but we managed to get out of there. The Ukrainians were like, you know, I went back to the checkpoint, got my passport. <laughs> there was all like, what's going on? You know, what? Where, where did you go? Like, Because even then, I think the communication was really bad at that point. No one was communicating. I think they thought there was Russians there and there wasn't, you know. Um, the Russians were probably further back than what the Ukrainians thought. You know, um, but yeah, it was yeah, it was quite intense, very intense. But I, I'll never do that ever again. You know, and I was quite, I was quite, uh, yeah, I was quite angry actually at the people who sent me, to be honest, because they told me it was all, you know, kosher and everything's fine, and you know, we just and the reality of it is that they knew that it wasn't fine, and you know, they had nobody else willing to go. 
So yeah, it was it was intense. But yeah, I won't be doing that again. We have a bit more things now to communicate and a yeah. few more things to study and everything nowadays. So yeah, yeah, this was quite early on in the war. Do you have any? I mean, don't don't give me specifics, but do you have intel connections now that can help you map a route? Uh, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. These days we do. Yeah, so we always communicate with whoever is receiving the goods. Um, we go through and study every single route now, um, and also times of day is quite important as well. You know, uh, when doing what we do, because obviously we, we we supply kit to the front lines. You know, we're not delivering to Kiev or 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 Lviv or anything. You know, we're going right right into the east and the southern front. So. Um, yeah, everything needs to be studied properly. And I mean, you can't always predict what's going to happen, but at least you can give yourself the best chance. That's nerve wracking, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, it's, to be honest, you sometimes you've got to, you've got to remember not to get complacent as well. You know, um, it's quite easy to get complacent, especially when you're in my position. I mean, I've done, um, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of kilometers, you know, now on the front line. So, I mean, you need to just make sure that you stay focused and make sure that um, you treat every single task as a new one. And, you know, you can't get complacent, even if you've been there 20 times before. You need to just make sure that you do your job properly. Um, and that's 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 how everybody stays safe, isn't it? So. so you started out kind of just doing whatever was at the border, bringing stuff in. Was that mostly for internally displaced persons at that point in time? Yeah, completely. Okay. Yeah, it was all all that. Yeah, uh, and hospitals as well. We were supplying hospitals with medical aid, so obviously there was a massive shortage, and hospitals were were ready for all this. So yeah. So from there, from bringing aid to internally displaced persons, to then bringing things to the front line, what what was that transition like? What was the impetus behind that? Yeah, needs change massively, and I mean, uh, I think once we started, we we actually just did like a couple of um, loads for the for the army. It was just more of a, a chance basis, and can you do this for us, sort of thing, um, from an organisation. And then we actually uh, seen how how bad the and undersupplied the army was. So, um, and then it's just kind of like transition from there, you know. Um, we met some connections in the army. We, I already had some friends in the army in a bit market, so I had a good understanding of what they actually needed and what they were short of. But it was a case of what we could get, you know. So it was a case of me reaching out to organisations who have equipment for the soldiers and who supply that kind of stuff, and then basically offering my services. To them. And that, and that's that's always been a priority for us as well, you know, uh, is the army, uh, because we always feel like. The army actually needs the stuff more than the civilians do. You know, the, if there's anybody who's who's not got anything out there, it's actually the army. Uh, you know, I know they talk about the US and the UK supplying all these billions of pounds of aid packages and stuff. You know, that's missiles and, and stuff, obviously, which is needed, but the average infantryman is, is actually hasn't really got much at all. You know, I seen a guy the other week uh, walking around with wooden plates in, in, his, uh, in his plate carrier. He had pieces of wood there, you know. Oh. And, it, and it, yeah, and he's just you know that's the kind of thing that you see all the time, and boots and stuff, just just basic stuff that they're lacking. You know, you've got the high tech missiles, but you know they yeah. they're lacking the basics really. Yeah. How much does a plate carrier cost, or the 
the ceramic plates? Um, I think you need, obviously, you need look, you, you'd be looking at level four. So um, the plate carrier itself isn't actually that expensive. Uh, I mean, you can pick one up for a couple hundred dollars, sometimes even less. I mean, you can get a lot of second-hand ones here in the UK, which, you know, people who've left the army sell the kit and stuff, which is a good quality kit. But it's the actual plate itself, you know, you're looking at, um, I think here in the UK, you're looking at about four or five hundred pounds um, for a plate. So sometimes that's just a one. And that's if you can get it, because there's such a high demand at the minute. You know, every, everybody's got backlogs and pre-orders and, and everything like that. So, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to get stuff because... A lot of the Ukrainians, the ones who have got money, um, are kind of buying everything anyway. You know, um, there's a there's an army surplus shop here near Manchester, and I was in there one day and I was talking to the guy in there, and he was saying that you know he, there, there was Ukrainians in London that were driving up every Wednesday in big vans and taking everything that he has coming in stock. He said he, he wasn't even putting it on the shelves anymore. It was coming straight out of his wagon into the van, he said, because because that, that was what was keeping his business going. You know, business was thriving for him. So, uh, yeah, it, it is quite hard to get some decent care of them because it tends to be all spoken for, you know. Um, but we do we do our best. And we do have contacts as well in Ukraine who, who, who can supply us when it's there. So, But, yeah, you just, uh, you, you're in a queue. There's a lot of other volunteers as well who... You know who who were before you, and that's 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 the thing. So we have a big chat group. You see, <laughs> people put out requests. There, you know, yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You gotta you gotta be fast. That's kind of impressive, though. It's it's amazing to think how much more efficient you guys probably are now compared to volunteers like eighty years ago before there were chat groups. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and I always say that you know um, a lot of the help that was coming into Ukraine. You know, at the start of the war, a lot of people probably didn't have good intentions. There was a lot of people collecting money um, and goods which never arrived in Ukraine. Um, there's still bits of that going on, but, I mean, we are very quick now to spot this sort of thing. And, and you tend to find now the people with good intentions are the people who are still doing it, you know? Yeah. So the people with the bad intentions, they've either packed up because they wasn't getting any more money or 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 they took all the money or um, or they've been found out by people like us. Because one thing is that we, we are good at, we're, we're all good at communicating with each other and vouching for, e for each other and stuff. So, yeah, we can kind of see through a lot of people and what, what, what intentions they have quite early. Have you had to deal with counterfeit like supplies and equipment? Um, counterfeit tourniquets, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of fakes going around. There's um, Chinese made fakes, and and some of them are actually quite good copies. And until you use it, then it will just kind of fall to look at. You think, yeah, that's a real deal. But um, yeah, but even me, I'm not really well schooled on how to spot a fake. So um, if I do come across any more tourniquets or anything, which I've not actually had any for a while, um, I'll probably send them to Becca. Um, she did say to me, um, send me some videos and stuff if you. If you can't get to me, send me some videos and I can tell you whether it's genuine or not. So we we do have that kind of thing. And obviously there's a lot of other people who do the same as Becca and are good at spotting these things. So, yeah, if I ever got any tourniquets or anything, I would be uh, straight away. The first thing I'd do is send the videos just to make sure 
that we are giving out good quality care because you know yeah. it's could kill somebody. So got a lot of people out there, you know, giving out kit that's killing people and have bad advice as well. I mean, mm. there's problems with people saying there was medics and stuff at one point and they weren't and you know all that kind of thing and giving out training even though they, they i don't know what where they got their training from but they you know there was a, there was a problem with that at one point so you know um i don't know what you call it down your way but is it like stolen valor or something like you know where somebody yeah that's i think that's a u.s term for mm -hmm. it but yeah people having false credentials sort of thing. So, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. But, yeah, these people tend to have been found out by now, hopefully, anyway. That's a lot of audacity to fake, like, a um, medical training program. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, so, oh. be, yeah, because I think a lot of the time as well, because a lot of Ukrainians probably couldn't read English and understand English and stuff, and people were turning up with fake certificates and stuff. It was kind of just like, yeah, you know, come on board um but i think once they started working in environments with actual professionals you know that's when they kind of got found out that's why i always say it's always best for anyone to be honest just be honest you know you might not get to do the job that you want to do but you just got to be honest because under the day people's lives are at stake you know and it seems like people are keen to teach things too yeah 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 of course yeah, so um, there's a lot of training courses and stuff provided by other volunteer orgs. You know, a lot of them are free as well. There's a lot of things you can do out there to, to, to train and learn and spend some time with organisations. I mean, all organisations will take volunteers, you know, to a degree, um, providing that you're dedicated and you have good intentions, you know, and you don't have alcohol problems or drug problems. Was there ever a concern about crossing a legal boundary with what kind of supplies you were taking and where you were taking them? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I think, obviously, for us, it was always non-lethal aid, tactical aid. It's always been non-lethal. I mean, we don't carry guns or anything like that. Um, even if I had the choice to carry a gun, I probably wouldn't carry one just for the simple fact that of how much, you know... Um, how much red tape there is and, and, and problems that it can cause as well. You know, I always get asked, have you got weapons? You know, all the time in the bottom. And I'm always like, no, but I always think, you know, what, what would happen if I say, yeah? You know, because are they going to stick the guns up in my face again? You know, because I've had that. You know, I've had that a couple of times, actually. So, yeah, it's... it's um, I always try and obviously stay within the legalities of things. Uh, I mean, sometimes when I'm bringing, like, infrared and thermal scopes in and stuff um it could be a bit of a problem with they want military paperwork for me to bring it in so yeah there's that there's that side but i always try and work around it if i can yeah and that's it for part one part two will be published in the coming week until then stay safe everyone <laughs>